Throughout the year, we've been, um, uh, I've been doing some teaching about the things that define us as a church. It's really important because we've got lots of new people at the church and it's good for you to be clear about what drives us, what's really, really important to us. You might uh, remember some of these. Started off with story and looking at the biblical story, the grand narrative, the importance of story. Talked about the fact that God has uh, made us dependent by nature that everything's personal. We looked at how people are relational worshippers by nature. We've uh, recently looked at how you grow up. Uh, And last week we looked at family and uh, in particular God's fatherhood and how he adopts us into his family. And uh, our normal gig at the church here is to uh, preach exegetical sermons, which is to take a book and just to work your way through it. And uh, we've done that a bunch of times this year. Out of the 42 sermons that have been preached in this church this year, 29 of them have just been working through bits of scripture and and some people would, you know, you could be forgiven for thinking the rest is topical, but there's actually a few things in between, a few categories in between exegetical and topical and what we've been doing is a whole bunch of biblical theology. So biblical theology at the end of the day traces a theme through scripture and shows how it's fulfilled in Christ, and then looks at the ramifications for us. So last week when I was talking about family, it wasn't really a topical sermon. It was a biblical theological treatment of family and God's fatherhood and how it runs the whole way through Scripture. And in fact, all of the sermons that I've preached on who we are as a church and the theological threads that, that run uh, through who we are as a church have been uh, biblical theological kind of sermons uh, by and large. Uh, But today is going to be different. Today is unashamedly topical, all right? So we're just going to have a look at something today. uh, And and I trust that by the time we get to the end of this, you will see this all over the place in Restoration Church because it's actually something that sits in behind the way that we do so many things in the church. And I want it, uh, my heart would be that you would get to the end of this and it would sit in behind the way that you do a lot of things as well. So let me... um, Let me kick in to this, uh, practical theology. Uh, Practical theology is a huge part of the way that we think about things here at Restoration Church. Uh, We love deep and profound theological truths. Before I could even understand them properly, uh, I used to love reading them. I remember uh, as a young man, people kind of saying, man, you get into some really heavy stuff. And I kind of went, yeah, I kind of understand some of it, but there's a whole bunch of it I don't. But I love the stuff that I learned so much, I just like to hang out in there. But the other part of, of my kind of particular makeup is not just heady, deep, profound theological truths, but let's think about how we get those down to street level. And uh, at some level, that's where we've ended up as a church. We love to, to dive into the pearl of deep, profound theological truths, but there's this thing inside of us that goes, we're just going to always be thinking about how to get it down into practice. We love to think about what this means for you and I in the details of life. And so I want to ask this question. It's a very simple question. It's a question that millions of people have uh, weighed in on. It's this one. How do you learn something? Massive question, right? Lots of opinions on this one over a long period of time. At some level, this is what the whole field of education is all about. Uh, I spent about 18 years as a teacher, and that's what they talk about all the time. How do you teach something and how do kids actually learn something? 
Uh, there's a whole philosophical field called epistemology, and epistemology is the study of how you know what is true and what is... Um, it's, it's the nature of truth itself. Uh, now, this is really relevant to the church because when you look in Scripture, we find that God's very, very interested in his people learning, isn't he? And in particular, he's really interested in people learning about him. You know, that in Scripture, we learn that there are a lot of things that we need to learn. And we also learn that God's very intent on teaching us these things. And here's, to the great disappointment of many here, perhaps today I'm not going to be cracking open all of this one today, all right, because this is a really, really big topic, but we're going to touch on it. And I want to narrow it down to the way that we typically, uh, at least in recent history, have understood this, and we've understood it like this. You learn the theory, then you learn the practice. That's what you actually do. Uh, normally, when you think about learning the theory about something, you're sitting in a room at a desk, someone is teaching you, and then your next step is that you go out and you put it into practice. You know, this is, if you know about philosophical movements, this, was, this kind of came through modernism, but it, you can trace it all the way back to the Greek uh, philosopher Aristotle. Um, in one sense, you come to the truth through reason, and then you apply it. That's the idea behind this. And this is the way, actually, that probably most of us tend to think about it. Um, and so when we come to the church and we see that God wants us to learn about him, the study of God is a study of theology, right? And so in place of the term theory there, when we think about how do we learn about God, this is kind of what we tend to think a lot of the time, is that you learn the theology and then you put the theology into practice. I remember in Sydney, I went to a church plant as a young guy, it was Parramatta Presbyterian Church. It was an awesome church, a really awesome church. And the pastor followed this process. Every sermon, it was, it was like clockwork, right? He'd get up, he'd give you an introduction, he'd give you three points, and then at the end, there'd be an application. It was the same kind of thing. Now, now I want to say, I'm not, today I'm not making a moral statement about whether the distinction between theology and practice or theory and practice is a moral thing. I just want to ask you this morning, do you think it's a good fit with reality? Is that the way that reality actually works? Are theory or theology and practice distinct entities from one another and you do one first and then you do the practice second? And I want to suggest to you this morning that it's just not a good way of understanding reality. I don't think it maps onto reality uh, very well. And I think there's lots and lots of places where it just isn't particularly clear-cut. Take swimming, for example. You could sit at a desk in a room and you could learn all the theory about swimming and watch all the videos about swimming. You could have all the experts come in and teach you about swimming and it wouldn't be enough to make you a good swimmer. It just wouldn't. Your knowledge would be incomplete until you got in the water and actually tried it. Now, you might come back at me and say, well, that's a practical skill which needs to be practiced, and I would say, you're right. But I would also say that your knowledge of swimming was incomplete until you actually got in the water and started trying to do it. What's my point? That, that if you're learning swimming, Theoretically, and then you get in the water and you 
practice it, you're still learning theory. You keep learning theory even as you're practicing it. So can you see where I'm going here is that these two are not always distinct different things. Here's another one. Uh, When you're engaging in learning theory, you're actually engaging in a practice. You're sitting at a desk, you're writing things down from a board, all of those are practices. If you wanted to learn how to swim and all you did was sit at a desk and learn the theory, then the practice of learning is not actually helping you learn what you need to learn. You need practices that are in alignment with the theory so that you can actually know something. Does this make sense or am I getting... Is it okay? You need to get in the water. And I would say this. Uh, Here's another one. Here's another one that just shows that theory or theology and practice are not distinct entities from one another. Uh, How many things in in your life have you learned in the midst of practice? In the midst of doing something? Heaps, right? You make a dumb joke... You move from theory to practice because you learn something about human interaction because everyone else groans about it and you decide you're not going to say that kind of thing again. Perhaps you do. I mean, one of the classic things about our culture, and it's not bandied around as much as it used to be, but people used to bandy around the term quite a lot that we're evidence-based. In the sense that you learn something theoretically and then you move to practice. And I don't have a problem with it. I think it's good to have good reasons for why you do what you do. But if you look at culture and the waves that roll through culture, they're not evidence-based. And I'm not going to go into it now, but if you want to have a conversation about this later, they're just not evidence-based. There's something else going on. Often, the movements in culture actually go against the evidence that's going around. And I think we're seeing a little bit of that at the moment. You know, as much as we want to say that we flow from theory to practice and theology in the church to practice, uh, the evidence is not always there. It's not always there. There's something driving it. And I want to duck for a moment into um, the kind of cultural, philosophical movement that we're in in at the moment, which is actually postmodernism. And you need to know that this is a big deal. All of the uh, identity wars going on at the moment about sex and sexuality all come back to personal... Well, it comes back to postmodernism. Postmodernism rejects objective truth. It says it's subjective truth. What I believe is a thing that rules, which makes all sorts of sense. And we're, I'm going to talk about this some more in, in the Sex and Sexuality series in, uh, in November. But that's actually what we're finding with identity, is I decide who I am and everyone else has to agree with me on that. This is kind of the fruit of postmodernism. There's a bunch of problems with postmodernism. Uh, but I'll tell you, there's one good thing about postmodernism. postmodernism. There might be more uh, than one, but here's one. Um, it made clear that the line between theory and practice is not clear. It's a blurry line. Now, I, I think that's true. I think theory and practice or theology and practice are always intermingled together. Either one of these can take the lead at any one point in time, but I don't think you can ever have one without the other. They are always operating together. Here's the way uh, you could put it. Theology is always embedded in practice, and practice always comes with theology. Now, let's take an example from Scripture, because I think this idea of theory and practice being intertwined is a very biblical idea. And so now we're going to get into the Bible. 
Go to Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read this. Creation of the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now, here's the question. You don't have to answer this out loud, but has God told you anything specifically about who he is there? He hasn't, right? But I could follow up and I could, say, I could ask you the question, what do you learn about what God is like by reading those first five verses of the Bible? Well, you learn heaps about it. So the question is, well, how do you learn these things about God from the first five verses of the Bible, if he's not telling you what he's like, well, you watch what he does. When you watch what he does you, here, you see he's powerful, he's in charge, he's life-giving, he has dominion, he brings order to chaos, and so on. Um, a theologian from of old says this about God. He says, God is who he is in his works. You can actually discover who God is by the things that he actually does. And you actually see this in the Old Testament heaps and heaps. Um, is, is that the Israelites are meant to know who God is by the deeds that he does, which is why they tell the stories of God's deeds all the time. Because his practice, God's practice, has got theology embedded in it. It's meant to teach you something about who God is. The end of... The creation account in uh, verse 28, you know, God says something very specific to Adam and Eve. And you, would look at, you could look at this and go, well, that's a little bit more kind of theory going on there. God's teaching some theory to Adam and Eve. God blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. You could be forgiven for thinking that's just theory or truth that's happening there. God's passing on some information, but there's a lot going on here. You know, there's a practice here is that the practice that's going on here is God's going to Adam and Eve and he's giving them instructions. And that tells you something about what's going on as well as the things that God actually says. Um, We learn things like this from God's practice, from what he's doing. We learn he's a revealer, he's talking and they are listening. That's really important. That humanity is designed to receive revelation from him. God is the Lord. He gives the orders. We find out about what humanity is supposed to do. So you've just got this intermingling of truth about God and who he is through what he's doing and also the truth that God is actually teaching. You know, it, um, I read this, I read this, um, this thing from a, uh, from a commentator this week. It was really powerful and... He said, if you want, knowledge comes from proximity. So if you want to learn something, you've got to get really close to it. You know, and I think about God. If God is a person and we want to get to know God, we're going to have to engage in activity that gets close to him, to actually know him. And sometimes I wonder whether the way that we go about getting to know God in the church, I don't think it always serves us particularly well. Because sometimes we can... We can sit in a classroom a lot 
and learn truth that's in Scripture and, and only get part of the way there because the practices that we're engaged in don't actually put us in a position to know God better. Is this, is this making sense? I hope it is. You see, the Hebrew understanding of knowing something is much more personally engaged than the way that we think about it. We think you can just know a fact, but the Hebrew idea about knowing something uh, requires great, much, much more personal uh, engagement with it. And what we actually find in Scripture is God has these really interesting ways of teaching people who he is. You know, he doesn't, you know, for a large percentage of the time, he doesn't sit them down in a classroom with a piece of chalk and a chalkboard, right? Uh, there's all sorts of things going on where God's actually teaching his people who he is. And I want to have a look at one particular place where this is just really, really stark. Um, and you can see God teaching someone who he is through practice. Uh, through doing things. Let me give you the backstory. God's people have been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Uh, Moses was born a Jew. He, he uh, was supposed to kill the, uh, the Jewish boy, so uh, his mum puts him in a, in a basket and he floats upstream and Pharaoh's daughter um, grabs him and they, he ends up getting adopted into Pharaoh's household. But he gets older and he sees... Um, uh, one of his people, one of the Jews, being beaten, and so he steps in and he ends up beating the Egyptian to death, and he ends up running off, and he's in the backside of the wilderness for 40 years, and one particular day he's walking around in the backside of the wilderness, and he comes to Mount Horeb, uh, and as he gets to Mount Horeb, there's a bush, and the bush is on fire, but it's not burning up. So he draws near to this strange, strange sight and God starts to speak to him. And God told him, he was, he's, he's, uh, God tells him, I'm going to send you back to Egypt to rescue my people who have been in slavery for 400 years. Moses responds. And what we see here is God's instruction and Moses' response. Uh, so now go, God says, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you'll worship God on this mountain. Now, what I want you to focus on is just keep your eyes on verse 12 there. That's a really disappointing sign. Did you notice that? What Moses is asking this question, he's like, I don't want to do this. God says, I'm going to be with you. So I, and then God says, let me tell you how you're going to know that I'm with you. And you would think in our world, it's like God's going to give you something in advance. He's going to tell you something now about him or give you some kind of trick. And God kind of does this later on, but... At this point, this is really early in the conversation, you'd expect God to give some, some kind of down payment now so that Moses will know that God's going to be with him the whole way. And what does God say? He says, here's the sign. Here's the sign. A sign points to something. Here's the sign that points to the fact that I'm going to be with you. You and all the people are going to come back and worship me on this mountain. Now, that's really disappointing, right? Um, 
prove to me now and God says, you go and I'll help you do it and that'll be the proof. You will learn about who I am as you do it. Do you see that? You learn about who I am as you do it. You learn through doing. And I'm just going to duck out here for a sec and just apply this a little bit, all right? Because this is what we do here, all right? We always mix practice and application in with theory. Um, maybe some of you are in this kind of place. I don't think it's possible to be a Christian for very long without having been in this place where you know that God wants you to do something and you're sitting there and you're praying and you're saying, I want proof that you're going to do something good out of this. I want proof that you're going to be with me. I want proof that you're going to give me the strength to actually get through this. And what you're saying is it's like, I need to know something about you to be able to go forward into this. And then God says to you, you're going to learn that as you do it. It's really annoying. Does anyone want to confess that that's really annoying? It is, right? But you get to the end of it, right? And you go, oh my goodness. I think I just learned something about God. And it was something that you couldn't learn by sitting in church on a Sunday morning. Right? And you learned through practice. Right? Because theology is always embedded in practice. You know, here's, here's the truth. I mean, you've probably heard this statement before by, um, by people that we're... In, in the West, Western churches are educated beyond their obedience. Have you heard that one? And it's, it's probably right. And it's good. We love to teach. And I'm doing a bit of teaching today. And we're always going to be doing teaching. But it's like probably most of us, we don't need to know that much more. We probably need to walk with God in practice. And then we're going to learn more about God. That's a personal one. Let's just have a look at a couple of uh, practical outworkings of this for restoration church uh, here's the first one we're just going to alternate between theory and practice all the time it's going to happen in sermons it's going to happen in community groups it's going to happen all over the place because uh, we just think this idea of theory and practice and learning about god in practice is a really good match biblically and for who people are we uh, we're going to tell stories about god's actions because they reveal who he is and um who was here when God pulled off us buying this building? Right? Didn't that tell you something? Didn't that teach you something about God at that point? You know? I don't know how many people I've spoken to who uh, said to me, you know, I thought there was no way that was going to happen. <laughs> you know? And God just pulled it off. He, he provided this for us. And we, we learned a bunch of things about him. We, we are going to... Uh, work to include theologically rich practices in what we do as a church. We just did one before, probably didn't even notice it too much, but I asked you to stand when we prayed. Why, why do I ask you to stand when we pray? Because I think your physical posture says something theologically about the way that you're thinking about God. So we stand and we, and we, we give our attention to him and we disrupt our comfort so that we can be focused on him. That's, that's why I do it now. You may not have picked that up. You may just think this is a weird thing that we stand every time we pray. For a bunch of time, and we could bring this back, uh, but for a bunch of time in the church, we stood when we read scripture. 
You know, there's, there's things that we're going to do in the church in terms of physical habits and practices that teach things about who God is. And, and, and here's uh, the fourth one, which is kind of similar to the first one. Uh, but you're, you're just going to feel like if you're in a situation where you're sitting and, and you're listening to lots of theory and, and truth coming out, you're just going to know we're going to get a little impatient. We're just hanging there for long, long periods of time. We're going to want to duck back into practice as, as quickly as we can, ducking into application. And here's, here's the last one. And I, while I'm around, I promise you that we will do this. And it'll make you a bit nervous sometimes, right? Because sometimes I talk about crazy ideas with the staff and they, they get a bit nervous sometimes. And we don't always end up doing crazy things. That's why we have an eldership, a group of people that run things. But, um, you know, you just need to take some, some risks, you know? And I, I just promise you that as a church, we are just going to keep taking risks because when you take risks, you learn about who God is by his deeds. And God's plans are above and beyond anything we can ask or even imagine. From the start of this church, we, uh, we used to talk about how this church punches above its weight, and you better believe that's happening. All right? And we are, we are in a uh, weight class that we shouldn't be in. Uh, in terms of the size of this church. I mean, I told you about stuff happening in Nepal, but we're going to do that, do that because uh, the magic comes from God, right? We don't look around at our physical resources and go, oh, I think we've got enough to do this. It's like, okay, what does God want us to do? And, uh, and then we're going to kind of start stepping out there and just go, I don't even know how this is going to happen, which is kind of what happened with the building. And we pray lots about it. And we make sure we're not silly about it, but... We pray lots about it. It's like, is this something that God actually wants us to do? And if it is something he wants us to do, we're going to step into it when we can't see the resources to do it. And then, you know what's going to happen? Is if it's the Lord's will, and I would say, you know, the agreement of God's people, the agreement of the elders and the leaders here, when we're all kind of on that page, it's like, well, the Lord's going to come through somehow and he's going to teach us some more about who he is. We're going to learn about him through practice. The human level, I think um, this intermingling of uh, theology and practice actually aligns really well with the way God's made us. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised at this connection. You know, your understanding of who humanity is shapes the way you think people are formed, right? Uh, and I don't know how many of you have read James K.A. Smith. There's a, there's an easier uh, version of his book which I would really encourage you to, uh, to read, You Are What You Love and one of the, the lines of James K.A. Smith is he says that humans are not brains on a stick, alright uh, and what he's saying there is that humans are not fundamentally psychological where you just got to give them the right information and they'll be okay, human beings are lovers uh, they're worshippers and lovers and if you've been at the church here long enough, you've heard this phrase, relational worshippers. We, we worship unceasingly and we ongoingly give ourselves in relationship to the object of our worship. It's not that thinking doesn't matter. Thinking is very, very important, but it fits into the larger whole. Um, as a people, I want you to hear this, as a people, we are always active. Always active. No human ever sits and just does theory because even the doing of theory is a kind of practice. We're always active and when you think about the human heart as a relational worshipper, 
we are always moving towards or away from God. And you can tell. <laughs> it's not just something that you think in your head. It's, it's, you can tell because it actually comes out through the way that you live. So I could ask you this question today. Uh, what do you believe about God? You don't say it out loud, but what would you say? What would be your first six things that you'd say? Five. Try five. I reckon those who've been around long enough, you could roll off a bunch of truths. Right? He's sovereign. He's good. He always speaks the truth. He's forgiving. His plans are always best. And you'd be right. But I could follow up with another question and ask, do you really believe those things? If you do, then why do you get anxious? And I'm not having a go. This is a teaching thing, right? Why do you get anxious? If you do, then why do you doubt him? If you think he's good, why do you doubt him? If you think he always speaks the truth, why do you prefer your own ideas over his? Man, I don't know how many times I'll do that. That's Proverbs 3, right? 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not upon your own understanding. If you think he's forgiving, why, why do you struggle to receive his grace? Uh, if you think his plans are always best, why do you do things without asking him about what he wants? You know, you can say that you believe things about God, but what you do reveals what you really believe about God at any one point in time. Well, to put it another way, your functional theology is your true theology. And I want to say to you this morning, and we're a bit accustomed to this, uh, there is no such thing as believing one thing and doing another. It doesn't exist. <laughs> you can say you do, but there's, there's no such thing as believing one thing and doing another. Whatever you believe, you do. You can't untangle them. They're like a knot and a tangle in a fishing line that a child has pulled really, really tight. They're just stuck together. Theology and practice are stuck together. So when I have a moment where I'm being really anxious about something in a really, really unhealthy kind of way. That's saying something about what I'm believing about God in that particular moment. Make sense? Now, it even comes down to how much... Oh, look, I, I don't mean to be annoying and get on your case, right? But it even comes down to how much change you implement as a result of sitting here listening to a sermon like the last six to eight weeks you know take mine out of the mix you just you've been served really well by pete and tom you know and, and i i could just ask just forget about mine if you don't do anything with mine that's okay right but for peter and tom it's like have you done anything different as a result of sitting and listening to it because functional if you haven't then what you functionally believe 
hasn't changed. You know, um, let me give you a few examples. You can say you believe in missions, all right? But if you never pray for anyone or tell anyone about God, then you probably don't. You can say that you're into generosity, but if you don't shout people meals and drinks, if you don't serve other people, you don't give to your local church financially and with your time, then you're probably not. And this one's a really thorny one because this is a long process, but just hear, hear the heart behind this. You can say you're into forgiveness, but if you don't forgive others when they hurt you, even if it takes you a while, you're probably not into forgiveness. You get the point? Actions and theology always run together. You can't actually separate actions and theology. So the question becomes, what do you really believe? It's a good question. I'm going to finish this morning by giving you a few helpful takeaways to think about and to uh, apply, people. Apply. Here's, here's the first one. Um, Truth is taught through practices and habits. Now, this is a big one for everyone, but in particular, this is a big one for parents, okay? Think for a moment about... Well, everyone can think about this, not just parents. What, what does it theologically communicate when you say grace before a meal? Everyone stops and you say grace. Now, I'm not... And some of you are going, is he getting legalistic? We've got to say grace. But no, he's not doing that, right? But just if you make a habit at night time, and, and when you were a kid, you, perhaps your parents made this habit. It's like, no, what we do is we all get our food, and then we come and we sit down and we stop. We don't just hoe in. We stop and we pray and we give thanks to God for the food. What does it teach? It teaches people that food comes from God, that it's good to be thankful. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things it teaches. It teaches us that God has priority over us just hooking into the food, as good as it might be. You see my point? Like, it's a very simple practice, but it teaches something theologically as you're doing the practice. So here's, here's another question. What does coming to church teach? What's the theology that's embedded in coming to church? That's a good question, isn't it? Here's something that I think coming to church needs to teach, and I've, I've always been on my kids' case about this. We go to church because life is not about us. It's ultimately about God. And so we get our lives interrupted by him and we prioritise him, especially on a Sunday, because he's the weighty one. He's the really important one. And so coming to church teaches that. So get out of bed. I mean, they're all teenagers now and they'd probably sleep till 10 o'clock. Get out of bed. We're going to church because the most important thing is Jesus. And we want to honour him. Today's not about us. That's some of the things that it teaches. Now, what about this one? What, about, what, is it, what does it communicate 
is your functional belief when you come to church when you're not getting anything out of it. Right? Because some people tap out and they go, I'm, I'm done with church for a little bit because it's just, it's not working for me. Pete's not that good a preacher, right? I just don't understand stuff that he says and it's not very relevant. So I'm just going to stop coming for a few weeks. See, that says something about what you believe the church is. You believe the church is something that needs to meet your needs and if it's not meeting your needs, you tap out. Now, is that what the church is? Is that what the New Testament says the church actually is? Um, Not at all. The church is a place where all of us need to come and serve one another. We come and we're actually part of it. We prioritise it. It's God's family gathering. That's what it is. Sometimes uh, I've I've had people come up to me before and just go, oh, we're leaving the church. And I go, oh, that's interesting. And it's like, what's your reason for leaving the church? And it's like, it's not feeling it anymore. And I just go, really? Like, do you think that's interesting? And someone just goes, I'm not feeling it anymore. Like, when I look at scripture, I just kind of go, well, that, I don't know. Is it in the Greek? (laughs) All right, in a text somewhere, and you can just go, I'm just not feeling it anymore. Yeah, maybe they're saying more than that, and I think they were. And I didn't beat them over the head. I just smiled and said, okay, thanks. Hope you go well, wherever you end up. I think they've ended up in another church, but do you see the point? It communicates something about what you think church is. Uh, habits are really important. Um, you know, even, even when you can't read scripture or nothing is going on, you're operating theologically. There's some kind of theological side to it. Here's the, um, the second one I, uh, I want to highlight as a takeaway. Retain the right habits and disciplines even when you're not feeling it. Okay, so if you're going through a dry uh, season at the moment, you just need to know that all of the pastors here go through dry seasons, all of the elders here go through dry seasons, some of the most high-end spiritual people go through dry seasons. I think Mother Teresa said uh, before she died that she had a dry patch of about 50 years. I think it came out and it was in the news at that point in time. Dry seasons just happen, all right? And you sit down and you read scripture and it doesn't say anything to you and you don't get anything out of it. And so what do you do? Do you stop reading scripture? It's like, no, you don't stop reading scripture because scripture is probably doing good to you that you don't realise and you don't see. The way out of a funk is not to give up. Now, Winston Churchill once said that if you're going through hell, keep going, right? Because one thing worse than going through hell is stopping when you're in the middle of hell, Right? Um, so what do you do? Well, you keep doing theologically rich practices even when you've lost your mojo. That's what you do. You find good things to do and you keep doing them even if there's no zing in it. C.S. Lewis wrote a book um, called The Screwtape Letters, which was um, really uh, well, kind of a fiction, but, but a whole bunch of really helpful truth in there about an, an older devil talking to a younger uh, sorry, an older demon talking to a younger de- demon about how to get Christians, right? And, and what you need to watch out for. Um, and there's this great quote, which I actually have on my uh, wallpaper on my um, computer. Uh, and this is it. Uh, Be not deceived, Wormwood. This is the junior demon. Our cause is never more in jeopardy than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, listen to this, looks round upon a universe in which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. 
What's that? Theologically rich practices. When I get into a dry patch and I can't get my heart to enjoy what I'm doing, I keep doing it, right? And the reason why I keep doing it is because I believe that my practice is going to teach me theologically, even if I'm not actually getting a whole lot out of it. All right, number three. I'll say a little bit more about that at the end. Is that Sondergeldism? Get amongst it. It, it, this, this goes back to the bit about taking risks. Uh, and and here's, <laughs> here's, here's a really simple thing you can do this week. Uh, just something different. Just do something different this week. Like, it doesn't have to be a massive, massive deal. Just do something different. Take a risk for the glory of God and for the good of people this week. I wonder if you can think of something. What's something I could do differently this week, which I'd have a little bit of risk about it, but it's actually for people's good and for God's glory? Do that. Literally, it might only take you like 30 seconds. You might, it might even be something as simple as this. It's like I'm going to look up the church member directory on Elvanto, on the app that I've got, and I'm going to, there's someone there that I want to encourage, and so I'm going to scroll through everyone's names, and I'm just going to send them a text message encouragement with the scripture on it. That might be different. Maybe it's not. That would be a good thing to do. Um, what are you doing when you're taking risks and doing things differently and stretching out? Is you're testing what you know about God and you're giving God the chance to teach you some more stuff about who he is through taking some risks. Here's, um, here's the last one. You can teach yourself truth through acting in the right direction. Uh, you can learn new spiritual things by leading with action. And this kind of comes back to what I was saying before about maybe losing your heart for spiritual things. It's like if you want to get it back in line, start doing some things. Start taking some risks. Start stepping out there and getting active about the things that you're doing. Because I'll tell you what I've seen over and over and over and over again, again is people in churches sometimes, and I'm not having a go, this is just an observation, they sit... And they're doing nothing and they tell you that they don't have a heart for God. And you know what I say? Start doing something. And you might just find your heart gets stirred up for the Lord. I used to say to uh, students out at the school, you can't steer a stationary boat. Just, just start doing something. Start serving, some, serving the Lord. And I'm not... Some of you go, oh man, is he talking about religion here? I'm not talking about religion. I'm just talking about laying hold of your own heart through really good, healthy practices. That's what I'm saying. So you get busy and you contribute and you do things. And I don't mean busy in an un unhealthy way. And you can actually see this kind of dynamic in the teachings of Jesus. Look at, look at this one. You know this one really well. Uh, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. So here's some really good logic, right? If you can keep your cash here and it gets trashed, or you can, you can be generous and invest in God's kingdom and send your money on ahead because there's a reward there 
for sending your money and your time on ahead because no one gets to take their money with them. But look at what he says next. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you know how you get your heart into kingdom work, especially as a Westerner? By giving money to it. (laughs) This is what Jesus is saying. You engage in the action of being generous and investing in kingdom work, and you know what's going to happen? Your heart's going to go there. That's that's what's going to happen. And so you can see here, it's like you invest in it, and your heart follows the investment. I'm going to pray a uh, a benediction on you. Um, I just want to say something uh, really quickly, just something personal. Uh, It's been really busy uh, for me since I got back. I was away for a month and got back, and there's lots of stuff on. This week uh, was an interesting week because my normal kind of thing in the mornings is I just want to get up and just take some time and start slow. I said to Tom the, on Friday night, like if I don't start slow and I start thinking about work, I just, I just can't get my head back at that point in time, even if it's like one o'clock in the afternoon. And, and this week there was uh, three mornings where I had morning, early morning stuff on and my normal kind of routine got interrupted. And, and you know what happened is I got really busy internally and there was lots of stuff to do and and I was really busy and I got to have some times with God along the way but I got to a Friday night and you know I just wanted to sit down and watch TV and switch off but underneath I knew there was a deeper thing that I needed so I just sat and I I read scripture and prayed and and no one else was in the house at that point in time and and then I got up Saturday morning and I read scripture and prayed and and just let my life get bumped by God. <laughs> and you know, you, you teach something to your soul when you do that, when your life gets bumped by God instead of your life bumping God out. Your, your functional theology gets shaped and helped by that. So encouragement to you is just find something to do where your life gets bumped by God. And, and you watch there's things that you believe underneath and then how it comes out in your practice because that will actually your practice can teach your soul and then it results in even better practice uh, the other side of that so let me leave that encouragement with you I'm, I'm with you I'm one of you uh, I have the same struggles that you do and the way my heart works the same as yours so find something to do and teach yourself something this week by some good practice this week let me pray this blessing upon you and may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may overflow in hope. Amen.